I'm delighted to welcome onto this week's TRM podcast, Baroness Hunt of Bethnal Green, otherwise known as Ruth Hunt, uh, one of the younger serving uh, peers in the House of Lords, serving as a crossbench peer. She's also CEO of Deeds and Words, got some fascinating insights into Beyond the Labels, what diversity inclusion is really about, and how you can influence meaningful change. Utterly, utterly fascinating journey story. Please do listen and enjoy. A massive welcome to the TRM podcast to uh, Ruth Hunt, Baroness Hunt of Bethnal Green. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Very lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. So really looking forward to getting into in, into a couple of a couple of areas. Um, before, before, before we do that, I, I think for those people, some people know you, others might not. I'm really interested in your in your story, um, which if I if I could kind of summarise it, went from growing up to growing up growing up in Cardiff. Next thing you appear as president of the Oxford University Students Union. Um, Fourteen years working at Stonewall, including five as CEO, and now you're a, a crossbench. Uh, peer serving in the House of Lords and been voted 2020 Powerlist on the 2020 Powerlist in terms of diversity and inclusion. W- which aspects of that of that pretty extraordinary journey uh, uh, surprise you or when you look back at them or do you just, just think it was uh, destiny, yeah, this was me? No, I don't think so at all. I think certainly um, I remember it being a very big deal indeed when I was uh, 17 to even be in the running to go to Oxford. Um, my, my parents had always been very keen I go to university um, because they they were mature students my mum went to university after she she trained to be a nurse originally and then then went to university and trained to be a midwife then did a PGCE then did an MSc then did you know did all that when we were kids growing up so we understood higher education Um, but you'd you'd go locally was the idea Mm. so so going to Oxford um, was 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 a big scary deal for our for our family I think um, and certainly when I got there, I, I wasn't, I, I, I don't think there is a usual type, typical Oxford person, but, but, but going and then being president of my college and president of the student union was, was a big deal because mm. I was openly gay, you know, this was 98, 99. Um, and, and that might seem, seem not a big deal now, but it was a big deal then actually uh, to, to kind of be, be quite so open and, and want to hold that position and be considered worthy of holding that position to be frank mm. so so I think that was that was a big big moment for me in terms of my leadership potential and, and aspirations and ambition I suspect. And was that a bit was that a big eye-opener for you in terms of uh, feeling that you 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 wanted to uh, share your voice to a wider audience was, was that when the opportunity arose more than anywhere else? I think so and I, I think it's where I realized that I could I could influence and I, th- I think that that um, you know and, and in those days it was on it was on quite simple things it was on rent controls it was making sure that students there's a there's a big disparity in Oxford that, that isn't generally known about but it, that if you go to a very rich college you pay less rent in my day mm. and you've got more book grants and you've got more you know there was just more stuff and the poorer the college, um, the more expensive it was. And of course, the kids who knew less about Oxford wouldn't understand that. Mm. So the 
kids from first into the university and, and were going from state schools would end up going to the colleges where the rents were higher. Whereas the, the, where you understood the rules, you applied to St. John's and Merton and the rich colleges and, and had a different time. So, so I realized I could advocate um, more effectively than I, than I had understood myself to be able to advocate. And, and really took pride that year in, in making my voice heard on behalf of people who just didn't understand the rules. You know, I, I think fairness is a big theme for me um, and everybody should have a fair crack at the whip, but if there's unwritten rules, that's not fair. <laughs> so you've got to help people understand some of these unwritten rules. And I think that mm. applies to the world of work, the world of politics, the world, you know, the, the, all of our institutions are, can be a bit baffling if you're on the outside. And mm. it's, it's one of the things that drives me, I guess. I uh, I was uh, I had it's gonna it's gonna annoy me now just as you were talking we had on the podcast somebody who's now the deputy chair of uh, of John Lewis, an extraordinary career. He wrote a book called um, Love Your Imposter. Yeah, and absolutely fascinating story from a, from a woman who's achieved a huge amount. So did so did the university years did that did that make you think about the potential of the impact you could have um, because and if you would imagine yourself sitting in the House of Lords, how many years years later, were you just saying the world the world is there to be? Um, I have a voice. Let's use it in the, wherever I can. I doubt I was that confident. So, so I certainly wouldn't have imagined being in the House of Lords at the age of forty. Like that was not that was not on the plan. I was never particularly drawn into party politics. I, I felt that, uh, it, that 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 the tribalism that came with party politics wasn't a very effective way of achieving change. But I also was really drawn to the armed forces. Um, you know, I, I was all, all those career tests you do kind of said join the armed forces. But of course, they only changed the law that allowed gay people to join the armed forces in 2001. So so and I was too open. Really, You know, there, there was no way I would have got away with it. Mm. So kind of realized then that 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 I had a had a bigger responsibility to try and make the world a better place. I mean, I was really aware that my mum and dad didn't didn't know much. When I came out, you know, I was 13 in Cardiff in 1993. You know, yeah. there's, there's not a huge amount of resources out there. Um, the schools didn't have anything. It was section 28. So you weren't even allowed to, to talk about um, homosexuality in schools. So I kind of, I thought, right, well, I'm just, I'm gonna, that's, that's gonna be my mission, if you like. And I, I'm gonna put some years into that. And I, and I, I guess that I, I I have to have a sense of purpose. I have to have something that that's bigger than bigger than than me. Um, so so that was drove drove me. But but my imposter was was very acute at 23, 24. Kind of um, it, it got a bit easier. I think in my late twenties when I was going up the ranks in Stonewall, came back pretty effectively when I became CEO at 34, and very much came into play when I joined the House of Lords at 40. I mean, <laughs> I, I I feel more of a sense of an imposter now. Um, than I did when I was 23, 24. I guess I had more of a arrogance of youth in those days where I could get away with, with not knowing stuff a bit more. Whereas these days, I don't think I can get away with it. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into the House of Lords after. And just, just in that 40, I think Stonewall was set up in uh, 1989, I think. That's right, yeah. So you were there for 14 years, which is uh, not a million miles away from half its, half its, its existence. What, what sort of change did you see in that 14-year that, that period? Well, significant change. I mean, one. So when I joined um, in two thousand and five, Ben Summerskill had been CEO for one year then, uh, or maybe two. So he'd 
he was starting to rattle through all the legal changes. So he, he was the kind of uh, legal genius, um, but he was also a very effective business manager. So got, got Stonewall on an on a even financial footing and an even financial keel. So when I started at Stonewall, we were 25 staff, 1.5 million. And I think when I finished, we were um, 100 staff and eight, eight, nine million turnover. So, so in that time, what we did is, is significantly professionalise and, and moved into a situation as a, as a lobbying organisation where we could um, basically move with ease with IBM, um, Channel 4, all the big corporations, all, all the public sector, but also advocate in a way that, that was quite that was quite at the sharp end. I think sometimes we, we became a little bit too assimilated. So, so Stonewall was very good at providing quite a nice, neat front um, to the of the gay community, if you like, uh, but we certainly, uh, you know, under under Ben's watch when I was a junior member of staff, we, we've got the best legislation in the world for lesbian and gay people in this country. So, so it worked. Mm. Uh, but trans people were very much left behind in that. And what we're seeing now is is the attempts to to get Britain in the right place on trans is much more difficult because we didn't do it okay. in that two thousand five, six, seven, eight, nine. So, so it. Cost cost benefit analysis is is always present for me. Yeah. Okay. And 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 in terms of the the work you do now with deeds and words, a couple of words that I wrote down when I was sort of prepping was one about you influencing politics, but also driving driving policy. But it, it feels to me deeds and words is a lot about behaviour. Yeah, it is. It's um, so. So me and my partner set up this company um, in 2019, and we we met at Stonewall. So we started working together in 2008, designing the leadership programs, role model programs, and, and things like that. And and I once I'd finished my time at Stonewall, and Stonewall's a very heroic leadership role. Do you know what I mean? As CEO, you kind of have to be um, front page. Uh, everything you do, everything you say is is indicative of something. And 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 what I had realised in my work from a from a policy perspective is that if you can spend time working with groups of people and helping them change the way they work, the way they think, the way they operate, you, your societal change is much more effective. Mm. So so deeds and words for me is an opportunity to slightly move to move from the centre stage out of the heroic leadership model into more of a collective leadership space where where we at Deeds and Words work with groups normally of 36 to 45 people helping them realize the ways in which they can they can achieve change for their organization which is which is more productivity it's you know whatever whatever their measure is it, it doesn't doesn't matter to me mm. but I'm very taken with the idea of really maximizing the impact of individuals when they work collectively and I think culturally we're not quite geared up for that so so I'm now uh, really working with some fascinating organisations to help them, them make those clicks that, that just drive better teams. And that to me is the heart of heart of inclusion, really, whereas I think inclusion is often reduced to um, quotas or numbers or how many people are we recruiting or how many people are we interviewing or, you know, how many people have we got? It's like I'm not looking for a Benetton advert. I'm as interested in how you get your straight white guy who's an introvert to bring his views to bear as I am in how inclusive you're being to that Asian woman, you know, the, both both require a similar level of thought. And, uh, and I think organisations just just oversimplify it to their detriment. And, that, uh, and that's a really interesting shift for me in terms of deeds and words, because you spent these 14 years where you very firmly 
re representing and championing a, a, a group of the population. And, and this is, is, is almost, I can take any organization and actually if I get the individuals to work more effectively collectively, then that, that is the ultimate of inclusion, which is, which, is, which is really interesting. So the sort of, when you say you're, because again, you, you talk about um, deeds and words delivering organizational change, what is that actually, what, what change are we delivering? Well, it, it can vary from organisation to organisation, but I've just come off a uh, reunion call where in October last year, pre-COVID, we worked with 36 women from a, from a very large organisation and we brought them together and we got them to understand ideas about authentic leadership, role modelling, um, how systems work against that, how you can uh, help work within your system, how hierarchy has an impact on how you work and how you show up, how you connect that with purpose and your values led leadership. And we, we met up with them again today, having had a, they've been working together on their own after our initial input. And all of them were talking about how their values had shaped the decisions they'd made over the last six months, how they were able to intervene with junior members of staff who were living in house shares and no computer and how they were able to say, actually, how can we work this differently and how can we do this differently? So what you saw, what I saw was a group of people who were remarkably empowered to improve their ways of working and, 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 their, and their operations. And all that's led to is better outcomes across the organization. 40% have been promoted in the last year. You know, there's a kind of real yeah. momentum and energy behind what they're doing. But the senior people we got involved in that work all talk of a better organizational culture because these people have had a chance to reflect on their ways of working, their purpose. I think the Simon Sinek model is really interesting. You know, he talks about what's do, what you're doing, how you're doing it. Da, da. He doesn't really ask who's doing it, who's in the room, who are the people? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a bit we miss out. And I think what Deeds and Words tries to ask the question is who's in the room? Who have you got mm -hmm. making these decisions? Mm -hmm. And we've seen from COVID, particularly um, in number 10, and this isn't a party political point, but in, in moments of crisis, and I certainly did this as CEO at Stonewall, you bring people into your group who are like you. Um, you know, you bring the people in who are going to understand your shortcuts or and understand your eccentricities and ways of working. What we got out of number 10 in those initial periods of that lockdown were policies that were made and written by people who thought very similarly. Mm. You know, there, were, there wasn't the understanding of what it would mean for women who were homeschooling. There wasn't an understanding of, of course, the impact of COVID on black and minority ethnic communities. There wasn't, you know, the, these things weren't being thought about because the people weren't in the room to shape that thinking. Mm. And therefore, policies that came out were, were inferior. And you see that in a commercial point of view, you know, the, the insurance adverts that talks to the over 50s as if they're white haired, hunched shoulders working a walking stick, whereas there are plenty of 50 plus people out there who are who are mountain biking and doing their thing. You know, we, we, we're limited by the perspectives in the room and that has an impact on all our different business outcomes and ways of working. It feels it feels like that, that those changes that you when you unlock the potential of these individuals and the teams to think and behave a little bit differently that as you were describing it's some of it, it it's beyond the um the skin deep isn't it it's yeah. it's, it's getting people to think think differently and, and and again a lot of what we're talking about coming out of the lockdown is that is, is the more empathetic human leadership that's taking place which requires us to understand each other so it's it's not a big obvious cultural change this this is quite nuanced subtle 
It is. And, and most cultures don't need massive overhauling. So so most most people kind of talk about, oh, culture change. And and if anybody said to me, well, you need to change the culture of deeds and words, I'd bristle. I'd go, well, actually, there's quite a lot that's working very well. Thank you very much. Are there things that we can improve in the culture? Absolutely. And it is that it is that that kind of nudge nudge approach to how do you just how do you get it working just that little bit more effectively mm. and it requires time and it mm. requires reflection and one of the biggest uh, barriers i think to both inclusion work diversity whatever you want to call it and culture change is that too much of it is done to people um so you know do this online module click through these boxes do this unconscious bias training course as if that's going to shift mm. and it's not it doesn't you know we 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 know very clearly that adults do not respond to being told. Adults respond to thinking and reflecting and talking and mm. thinking about about what it means to them. And, and some of that's painful sometimes and, and, a, and a bit awkward. But generally through that time, you, you lead, you get to better results if it's well held and well facilitated. Mm. Um, and, and that that requires a, a degree of um, uh, empathy but also emotional intelligence and 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 working online has, has proved a challenge to that you know mm. usually me and Caroline we work and we feel the room you know you can feel what's going on in a room and we've had to massively up our spidey man senses to work on 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 a different platform it's 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 been a challenge but in a way you can you can learn a lot from from where someone's at uh in their little squares these days even if we haven't quite all mastered that technique yet but, but if you can go into an organization and say, right, I can, uh, you know, out of the 40 of you, 30 will probably be promoted as a result of us getting this right and we'll, 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 we'll make a significant impact positively on the culture. That, that, everybody will want that. So where, so where does it go wrong? Where, does it, where do organizations aspire for that? Where, where do they fall short? Well, they fall short because they don't necessarily want those people to be promoted. Mm. Um, because, because actually, if, if, if you have a pyramid organization, then someone's not going to be promoted in that. Mm. So, so there's, there's quite a challenge to the status quo mm. to say that the old ways of working has led to this. We're going to change those ways of working. Someone's going to lose out in that. The other thing that, that disrupts it is people are just, uh, people don't connect it with, the mission, with their organizational purpose. So if you need to make more widgets, then you need different ways of thinking in the room to make those widgets. Like people don't believe that. Um, so you can kind of say, look, your productivity will go up if you buy everyone a standing desk and everyone will go, all right, let's buy some standing desks. If you put more women on your board, your profits will go up. Mm, really? Don't really believe that. Don't don't really. So there's a real um, reluctance to accept the premise that, that a mix of minds genuinely leads to better outcomes. Um, and therefore, people don't connect it with their mission or purpose. So if your job is to sell more cars, why does that mix of minds help you sell more cars? If your job is to, so they don't ask that question of themselves and you get three groups and you either get a group that goes, well, it's really obvious, um, but never can quite articulate it. You get a group that says, well, it's the right thing to do. But again, that's just, that can just be patronizing nonsense if you're not careful. And you get a group who go, I don't believe any of it. You know, I just think we should just judge people on their skills and everybody's got the same opportunity. Unless you can say, why do we need a genuine mix of minds? Can you succeed? So me and Caroline have just brought in a third director. So me and Caroline, we're a couple in life. We've worked together for years. We're both white lesbians. You know, we can predict each other's sentences before they finish. When I'm fed up, it'll be her I want to whinge to because she'll tell me I'm doing really well. Um, she's not going to tell me that I cocked up. She's going to go, oh, you're all right, kid. 
we've brought in Delia. Delia is a black working class woman from London. She's got a massive background in the arts and experiences, and it is disruptive and uncomfortable mm. to bring in a third perspective onto our beautiful little business model that's working quite well. You know, it, it's hard to do. And you the reason why we've done it is because we need those different perspectives. You know, we absolutely need to disrupt. Now that's a microcosm, these words is seven. You've got an organization of a thousand, disrupting your status quo is really uncomfortable and it's challenging. And mm. it, it, it's easy not to bother in an organization of a thousand. It's easy to say the work is we've asked, we've asked Gordon for 20% uh, uh, women on our shortlist. That's our, that's our work done. That's our step towards a mix of minds. Mm. Whereas in fact, the reality is going, I'm going to take this person, even though they're not quite my type of person, mm. because I want to disrupt it. Mm. And that, that requires a significant faith in the fact that that will genuinely lead to better outcomes. So, so, so again, books like uh, Matthew Syed's Rebel Ideas, which are sort of based on the simple concept, get different thinking. But, sh but again, when I listen to you, is there not more and more evidence? Because one of the most best ways to influence people, in my my opinion, is sort of start start talking facts and facts and evidence, and that tends to uh, change the dialogue a little bit. When it comes to diversity, equality, and inclusion, I have to ask you um, because I am. Um, I'm learning all the time and, and, and it's quite fast moving, you know, yep. BAME is, is now no longer recommended. Uh, um, unconscious bias training is no longer recommended. Things are changing pretty uh, pretty quick. I, somebody told me the other day, actually, it should be diversity, equity and inclusion. Uh, and I was getting starting to get confused. But anyway, let's call it diversity, equality and confusion. On, on the journey that on the journey that we're on, and again, I saw a survey recently that said organisationally, um, as employers, diversity and inclusion has gone from number nine on the priority to number eight, up to number one in the last twelve months. Um, wh where are you? Are you encouraged by where we're at now? The dialogue, the momentum that's taking place. Are you uh, are you excited? Are you slightly frustrated? Are you thinking if we could do X, Y, Z, this could be a, an even faster journey? I, I, I don't think I don't think the words um, equality, diversity, inclusion help very much because they just kind of make people feel like it's something on the side of a desk and it's different. I think there is not a CEO I've ever so Stonewall works with 700 employers, right? And I've I've worked with hundreds and hundreds. Of, there's not a CEO I've ever met who's not been interested in improving the productivity of their staff, you know, mm. or the job satisfaction, or the connection with the organisation, or effective performance management. It doesn't all have to be rosy. It's also about how do you move stuff on when they're not right anymore. Mm. Everybody is interested in the efficiency and efficiency of their organisation. And inclusion is that. So how do you get the right people showing up at the right time, bringing their best efforts to the workplace? I get concerned when there are blips in the OMG, we better worry about. Um, quick, let me let me read a book on race. Uh, let me read a book on gender. Right, got it, understood. Because actually, if that's not connecting with that primary question of what are we here? Why are we doing it? Why do we want to, how do we want our staff to feel? Then it, it will never completely stick. So in, in my career, and I've been hanging out in this sector for 20 years, I see these moments come and go and not actually move the needle very much. Where the move, needle moves is when deeds and words don't do inclusion work at all. We do growth strategies. We do uh, working with staff to work out their um, what their uh, recruitment plan is for the next five years, what their what their workforce planning strategy is. You know, anything that is that is 
part and parcel of making a business work well, doing that in an inclusive way is where it sticks. Mm. Then you get people going, well, actually, I don't need 10 people. Um, so I do a lot of, a lot of work uh, with the army, for example. We, do, we don't need 10 people wearing chinos with modern language degrees from Oxbridge, actually. <laughs> we need two of them, um, but we also need three of them and three of them. Well, why is that, sir? Oh, well, because, you know, basically I don't need 10 people who are all thinking the same. I need a bit of mix on this. Okay, mm-hmm. talking about that in terms of workforce planning, I'm going to get the result. If I say to that sergeant major, why aren't you recruiting more black people, sir? He'll go, well, we're very committed to uh, racial inclusion and I've been on an unconscious bias training course and uh, I'm now absolutely terrified. I'm going to say the wrong thing. And uh, Baroness Hunt is going to shout at me because I've got my words wrong. It's a barrier. If I ask him about workforce planning, then we're getting there. And, and I think it's really about helping people find the connections of this to their core purpose. The industry of diversity is extensive, expansive, and very poorly researched. So uh, McKinsey's has got the closest of demonstrating that uh, when you have women on your boards, you are more profitable. Um, EY did a study that found that when their staff were happy, they made more money. Um, IBM and and people like them, they use their staff network groups to do business to business exchanging with the other network groups. You know, they're, they're much more strategic. Deeds and Woods have just appointed an impact and evaluation manager because what we want to do is basically manage measure, measure the impact longitudinal on all the pieces of work we're doing. Because there's a piece of research that says 25% tipping point is the golden number. If you've got 25% of a group thinking differently about this mix of minds, that Matthew Said stuff, then you will start seeing positive outcomes in terms of your outputs. And we mm-hmm. want to test that. So, so instead of getting another salesperson or another director or another this that, and the other, we've, we've actually brought someone in who's a geek and an expert at, at this stuff so we can start monitoring it because there's there's too much bad practice. Unconscious bias is another good example. You know, unconscious bias training was the fad, uh, but no one's ever tested it. And now people have started testing it going, well, it doesn't make any difference. You, you know, you tell someone that they're a bit racist, they'll tell you they're not. You tell someone they're not racist, they think they've got nothing to do. You know, it, it doesn't make much difference, the unconscious bias training test. It's much mm. more important to talk about people, what drives them and what motivates them. You're... D- at the, at the heart of what you seem to be saying is actually ultimately, whether it's 25% or 30%, ultimately, if I can get that diverse thinking within this team, you will be a better organisation and achieve better yeah. results. Is that, yeah. that, that, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. it really is as simple as that. So it's not rocket science. So lots of people who approach us, these some words for work, we tell them they don't need us. And they, we just say, look, Go, go back and have this conversation with your team and come up mm. with your own action plan and mm. do your own stuff. And, you know, you, you don't you don't need uh, consultants that, you know, me, me, deeds and words tend to come in uh, in organisations that are that are either going in quite a new direction and mm. want to de- want to design from the ground up or that they've got a crisis, you know, that there's something really problematic going on in their team. Mm. But we've been running, we've been running programs with one of our clients for the last decade. And, you know, we're, we're seeing, we're, we're absolutely seeing the changes in how those people, those delegates we saw when they were junior are now becoming senior leaders and absolutely influencing culture and ways of working across mm. the organizations. It's, it's, a, it's very powerful. And that presumably came from recognition from the leadership that the buying into what you're saying which is if you can get diverse thinking you will be a better organization 
because mistakes were made. So so you can see, you know, there's this there's, there's public sector gets more more coverage for their scandals than the private sector. But the Staffordshire inquiry in the NHS, the Chilcot report. So the Chilcot report's a really good example in the security sector. So the, the Chilcot report was a result of the it was a product of the Iraq war. And the reason why we went to war with Iraq is because the same group of people kept making the same decisions and the same conversations about risk. So Tony Blair had his gang and they just kept and they would not bring in any other perspective. Mm. And the consequences of that are, are quite big and obvious. You know, we can kind of see it. Mm. But I think it's also clear in somewhere like um, Sports Direct. You know, we kind of know instinctively if you treat your stuff badly, your business is going to fail. Mm. So it's not a massive leap to kind of go, well, kind of treat all your staff well. And often diversity and inclusion issues are the canary in the coal mine. So if your women are experiencing kind of sexism, your men will be having a rubbish time as well. <laughs> you know, that's just the one you thing you're seeing. So it's always a good indicator. We've got a company who's coming to talk to us at the moment, two relatively junior member of staff who've come in and said, look, please, will you come and help us do some words? Our boss just doesn't believe there's a problem. And and I've said, look, I will I will coach your boss, but you can't get us in if your boss isn't ready. You know, it's not about money. It's not about, any, you know, we, but we. I said, I'll give I'll give your boss as many lunches as he wants to try and help him out on his journey. But if he's saying there's no problem and they are so distressed, mm. these junior members of staff are seeing incidents of sexism and racism where they're working and feel unable to say anything. And th those are the instances that break my heart. Yeah. Yeah. OK, interesting. Um, that, that, that simplicity of that diversity of things is fascinating. But if you if you went to most regional intelligent people and said, listen, if we brought in some slightly different thinking, different perspectives, different angles, different views, um, surely we'd think and therefore do a little bit better. And, and it's very difficult to argue with that when you really yeah. break it down into its most simple. Yeah, fascinating. But our instincts, are, our instincts disrupt that. So there's, there's, there's three biases that are important. So affinity bias, perception bias, and confirmation bias. And, and if so affinity bias is when we like working with people like us. You know, bis business runs like that. Confir perception bias is when we've got prejudices, but confirmation bias is when we rule ourselves out. So, so now I'm in the House of Lords, I can see those three biases playing out quite well. So the, the House of Lords is, is absolutely driven on affinity bias. You know, who, how you know, who you know when to speak, when you know what to say when you stand up, which corridor to walk down, which bench to stand up, you know, all those kind of written rules. And if you if you get it, you're part of the gang. You're in the affinity group. And I, I don't fit. You know, I am not part of the affinity group. I wear beautiful three piece suits, usually, you know, gorgeous kind of bespoke tailoring and liberty ties and shirts. You know, there is no doubt that who is this kid, right? Not only am I young, I'm a woman, but you know, I'm, I'm dressing like Gentleman Jack, do you know what I mean? So strutting around the place and I don't belong. And, and there's part of me that wants to kind of do everything I can to belong and kind of, so I'll learn, I'll learn all the rules and I'll do all my homework and I'll make sure I never miss a deadline and I'm on it every single time. Whereas people who belong don't have to worry quite so much about that. They can kind of get away with more. There's also inevitably a degree of perception bias. There are bound to be people in those chambers who are going, who has let this lesbian in? You know, that it's inevitable that there's prejudice going on. But my imposter thinks there's far more prejudice than there really is. So that's the confirmation bias. So I'm now a bit anxious. So I'm like, God, not only do I not fit, but I think they all think I'm, I'm a mad lesbian who's not allowed in here. So now I'm too scared to speak. So I start <laughs> underperforming. 
right? So in that whole trio, my confirmation bias means I'm not, not going to do as well. So the guys who are in the peers go, well, we had it, let's be honest, didn't do very well. Um, so that's a, that's a really kind of big example because the Lords is quite an easy example, but that is happening every day in our teams, all the time in our different teams, our different ways of working. Um, well, you know, and we judge people more harshly. So when people are part of our affinity bias and we like them, we forgive them their cock-ups. Mm. When we've recruited despite our instincts against our affinity bias, well, well, you know, we, we took a risk on them. Of course, they've made a mistake. Mm. Mm, it's just not going to work out. So all those different things are happening that stops us mm. bringing in that mix of minds because a mix of minds can be a real pain in the neck. <laughs> You know, when you want to just get on, yeah. when you want to just follow your instinct. And I'm yeah. like, hold on a minute. I've got my stripes. I don't need to have a little chat with that junior member of staff about her hot take on what I'm doing differently. But of course, she might have something interesting and valid to say that, that might make a difference to what I'm going to do. So mm -hmm. all those different things, it, it goes against our instinct when what we want to do mm -hmm. is go it alone. And the, uh, but the, again, just listening to you talk about the House of Lords, I'm sure it's changed in, in in recent years, but equally there's an awful lot of change potentially that should be happening um, with hereditary beers and all that. But um, it must be a fascinating, fascinating uh, for you and the journey that you've been on um, to be immersed in into that into that into that place. It must be extraordinary. You must be learning every single day. Every single day, and it's and it's just an extraordinary group of people mm. um, with with such extensive expertise. Just just this this whole brain that is existing in this chamber is just it's just quite extraordinary. So all the way during COVID, and, and the the rules have changed. Um, you 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 only get your expenses if you if you turn up. That's kind of the rules. You don't get paid to be in the House of Lords. Um, but of course, none of us have been able to turn up. So so we've been on something called. Uh, peer hub an mm. app and um and if you speak you get paid so now lots of people are signing up to speak and it's quite important that you don't speak in the lords unless you know what you're talking about so mm. all the way during covid i've been i've been speaking less and just hearing you know this ex-chief mm. nurse and this ex-chief doctor chief mm. medical officer chief epidemi this expertise concentrated in the lords that can be drawn mm. upon and it's um it's an it's an honor to be there but of course when when you're experiencing a touch of imposter syndrome you're like why am i here um but i'm doing a lot of work on culture so so i'm working behind the scenes a lot on how do you improve relationships between the peers and the staff mm. how do you end this there's there's plenty of peers who think the house of lords is a private members club where there are staff who should attend to their every need mm. and there are others who think it's a workplace where the staff are there to support and get the job done so mm. that that's two quite major cultural clashes going on there mm. and mm. uh managing that and it's by carrot or stick is is quite interesting because what they're trying to do is say everybody's got to go on training and i don't believe that works mm. i don't believe sending some of these people on compulsory inclusion training is going to make them treat their staff any better. I think it just might frighten them into not cocking up, but that's not the same as behavioural change. So it's a fascinating time and place. Utterly, utterly fascinating. Um, Ruth, that's, that's been phenomenal. I could talk in half an hour. I actually went to the House of Lords and House of Parliament just uh, two, two summers ago now, something I wanted to do for a long time, just out of interest. And uh, just a sense of what's happened and what happens in that place is extraordinary. So for you to be among it and uh, and, and getting involved in shaping the culture and evolving it is, is just 
Wonderful. Um, I'd love to catch up another time. <laughs> but I am conscious of your time. Um, just two final quick questions, slightly personal. Your tattoo, which I, I got this from public knowledge because it, it's on the House of Lords. You, oh, you, gosh, you, is it? <laughs> you, you've got a tattoo of, of, I think it's 14th century. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't understand the 14th century, uh, the, the, what it meant. So what does it mean? Oh, so it's, um, I don't think it is for, I think it's um, 11th century, actually. It's Julian of Norwich, okay. uh, who is a pretty amazing woman. She was a nun uh, who could read and write, and she got really sick and had all these trippy visions, and she wrote something called um, uh, the, the Divine Love, I think, and, and her famous quote is, uh, uh, sin is behoveli, so sin is necessary. It's kind of, we've all, we've all got to do it. Let's just get on with it. But all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And uh, it's a good maxim to live by, because uh, basically it means shit happens, but it's all going to be all right. And uh, yeah, that is my tattoo. I didn't realise that was in the public domain. Yeah, it's that on my it. back. Because uh, I did, uh, I did English literature at Oxford, so uh, I did mid Middle English. So it's in the original Middle English, um, because that's where I did my extended theses. And uh, so it's it's a bit about my past, my future, and my life in general. Um, there is no better place to leave it than it happens, <laughs> but it'll be okay. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> or the 11th century translation of it. Ruth, um, thank you. Really, really loved, loved, loved you coming on board and sharing your thoughts and experiences. Absolutely fascinating. Can't wait to see the next 10 years. Thank you uh, very much. Thank you for joining us. Cheerio.